Chapter 7 of Beyond the Body, the Human Double, and the Astral Planes by Benjamin Walker. Methods of Projection. Before we go on to describe some of the methods of conscious projection of the astral body, it would be fitting to summarize the words of caution that have been voiced from time to time by responsible exponents of the subject about the risks and potential dangers involved in experiments in dissociation. Spontaneous exteriorization, such as might occur during illness or accident, is one thing, but enforced dissociation is another matter altogether. A prominent psychic once said that those who dabble in these pursuits are likely to become afflicted with pathologies of the astral body, and the auras of such persons have been described as ragged, muddy, and malodorous. Even simple methods of projection have their hazards. For one thing, the excitement of the new adventure might result in excessive preoccupation with astral phenomena and occult experiences. It is not unknown for students to become so absorbed in the subject that they lose touch with the everyday world, become alienated from family and friends, and suffer all the domestic, social, and material consequences. Again, if one is of a nervous temperament, the experience of finding oneself isolated in the astral plane might create a sense of panic and sudden shock, leading to temporary or even permanent insanity, and in extreme cases, death. Likewise, a too sudden return for any reason might, by violent repercussion, cause severe damage to the nervous system. If the astral body has once or twice been forcibly moved out of alignment by recourse to more drastic methods like psychedelic drugs or some other xenophrenia-inducing agent, the door to the outer dimensions that is normally shut tight during one's waking hours may be loosened or, worse still, remain permanently ajar, creating a leak from outside. Symptoms of such a state may include headaches, dizziness, loss of memory, hypochondria, fainting spells, paralysis, voices, hallucinations, and nightmares. If persisted in, the exteriorizations may begin to occur occur spontaneously and projections recur without volition and go beyond control. In extreme cases, the hinder side of things normally concealed in the unconscious might turn about and merge with the events of everyday life. An even more serious possibility is also to be envisaged. The astral body is intimately connected, no one knows by what mysterious corridors, to the inner recesses of the self, perhaps even the soul. And incautious experiments with astral projection would involve tampering with the delicate balance of this relationship, resulting in a progressive disintegration of the psyche. Another more concrete hazard of astral travel is physical injury to the unconscious body left behind. Before projection, an expert always assumes an easy, relaxed posture. If his body is moved from its position, the fit of the returning astral might not be in exact alignment, and reintegration can be slightly delayed. Dizziness and mental obfuscation can ensue, and this can continue for some time until the two bodies have coincided perfectly again. The gravest danger during projection is the possibility of the death of the unprotected physical body, whether by accident or murder. For this reason, trained occultists are careful to leave their physical bodies in the care of a trusted disciple or friend when they expect to be away for a few hours. The necessity for this precaution has been noted from very early days, as we find from the legend of the Asiatic Greek mystic Hermodamus of Clasamine, 
who had the gift of astral projection and would abandon his body for days on end and journey to remote regions of the material plane and astral planes to gather prophetic lore. He would leave his body in the keeping of his wife, cautioning her to be sure that it was not moved in any way. Returning home, he would regale her with his adventures, unaware of the fact that she was growing more and more resentful of the enforced loneliness she had to endure during his long absences. Accordingly, she decided to give him a fright and put a stop to his excursions. She sought the help of two of her husband's friends, not knowing that they were his rivals in sorcery. She left them to move his body into an adjacent room, but instead they set fire to it. The wretched man hastily returned in his astral form, but found himself cut off and isolated in the astral world. For years, it was said, his ghost could be seen in the vicinity of his home, crying pitifully to be restored to his physical self. To the layman, many of the exercises given below might appear harmless in themselves, but when practiced by the wrong type of person, particularly someone who is emotionally unstable, they can lead to nervous and mental illnesses of various kinds. Some of the exercises are definitely dangerous and should never be attempted by anyone in normal circumstances. Into this category fall the various techniques of starvation and exhaustion, and above all, the methods of inducing instantaneous trance, like partial strangulation by pressure on certain nerves in the neck, which can send one out in a few seconds, and if not properly done, can kill. All these methods were known and practiced in the ancient world, including Greece, where they formed part of the secret rites of the Archaic Dionysia Festival. To a lesser extent, they are still practiced in India, the Middle East, and certain parts of North Africa. An ever-present danger of most kinds of projection, even when adequate precautions are taken, is the possibility of being mistaken for dead. It has been pointed out that cataleptic conditions often accompany projections and other xenophrenic states, with symptoms closely resembling death. The so-called vegetative concomitance of life may be brought to a standstill or near enough cessation to deceive an ordinary examination by the family physician. The heart may show no perceptible beat, breathing may be absent, and the body cold to touch. This condition of deep trance might occur at any time during projection, and may be mistaken for death by stroke or heart failure, and the person certified as dead. In cases of severe catalepsy there is, says Oliver Fox, a serious risk of premature burial. It is medically well established that there is no absolutely certain method of distinguishing death from what is known as suspended animation, and cases of inadvertent premature burial or near burial have been recorded right down to modern times. These records, which are more numerous than one might think, relate only to those instances that have come to light by accident, and naturally exclude a possibly large number that remain unknown. While theoretically no one is free from this danger unless he dies by being shot through the heart, or is hanged and left hanging for some time, or mutilated and mangled beyond recovery, or until putrefactive decomposition sets in that totally excludes the possibility of the body's return to life. The risk is greatly increased for those who practice astral projection, as the inert body found by relatives or friends might easily be regarded as dead, and this fact even confirmed by the doctor. Travel in the astral planes, as taught in certain occult schools, should be undertaken, if at all, with considerable caution. The callow neophyte who inadvertently ventures into a dimension for which he is not properly equipped will fall an easy prey to the non-human entities who are native to those spheres, and who are not slow to attack anyone trespassing on their preserves. Accounts of astral projection, even by experienced occultists, often describe the encounters with hostile beings in the plains. Those who have been injured in the astral do not necessarily show evidence of their injury in the physical body, but are nonetheless affected mentally by it. 
Sometimes the entities take advantage of the person's absence from the body to prevent his complete reoccupation of it on his return, thus causing obsession and, in more serious cases, possession. Unscrupulous adepts of the left-hand path can take advantage of beginners who venture into the planes to acquire power over their astral body and thus have an overriding influence on their lives. More commonly, they tamper with the cord that links the astral double to the inert body of the practitioner. The cord is susceptible to torsion, and black magicians sometimes twist, knot, or otherwise injure it. This results in mental disturbance, nightmares, hysteria, and the intrusion of the occult planes into daily life. When the cord is thus injured, its hold on the body is tenuous, and this leads to the early death of the victim. The English hermetic mystic Anna Kingsford, 1846-88, who had a great knowledge of these matters, writing of the dangers of dilettantism, said, Those who enter into relations with the powers of the astral and elemental without having made sure of their hold on the celestial render themselves accessible to the infernal. These, then, are among the dangers mentioned by occultists. Researchers note that a strong construct constitution and rude health tend to inhibit all forms of occult activity, whereas a certain constitutional delicacy and nervous sensitivity seem to favor astral projection. For this reason, the warnings given are doubly applicable to those who have a weak heart, are high-strung, neurotic, or addicted to drugs. It is generally admitted that a certain degree of psychological instability is often found in those who dissociate easily, and such persons can do themselves great harm if they deliberately aggravate their weakness by projective practices. A small minority of people are endowed with the natural ability of spontaneous dissociation. They retain consciousness and return to recall what they have experienced. In simple societies, recruits for the vocation of shaman and witch doctor were selected from among adolescents who showed a natural tendency to dissociation and trance states. They were quickly spotted, and if their parents were willing, were segregated for training. By and large, most people never reach the condition of conscious projection, however hard they try. The average man, who clings like a limpet to the affairs of the mundane world, is guided by a natural instinct against trifling with the occult, and is protected by his innate skepticism from credulity in such matters. If, in addition, he is physically robust, he is further rendered immune to the hazards of projection by a constitutional incapacity to experience more than a very slight degree of discoincidence as during sleep. A few persons have a brief experience just once or twice in their lives, quite inadvertently, as in serious illness. Some acquire the ability to project after a few effortless exercises. A sampling of such exercises is given here. If anyone is serious about practicing projection, he should set aside a certain day and time for the disciplines. It is advisable that the stomach be empty, and that no food be taken at least four hours before the exercises. A quiet room is essential where there is no likelihood of disturbance, and during the exercises the room should preferably be in semi-darkness. The time when discoincidence normally takes place is from approximately one hour before to about three hours after midnight, when one would otherwise be in a state of deep natural sleep. Some experts say that the proper weather conditions are also important, especially during the early stages of the practice. Atmospheric tension or thunderstorms when the air is humid or muggy are not conducive to the best results. The weather should be clear and dry with a high barometer. The best room temperature is between 70 degrees to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Relaxation is the first step in dissociation. Muscular tension, mental strain, overzealousness are all inhibiting factors and should be avoided. What is often found to be a disturbing element is the thought that one has to complete the exercise within a given time. If any such note of urgency obtrudes, it will be sufficient to interfere with the whole procedure. 
the pressures of time must be lifted and the schedule for the exercise is so arranged that there is no likelihood of any such anxieties being created. There is no time limit for the routine, and even ten minutes regularly devoted to it are enough. If nothing happens, just go to bed. Besides this, any intense striving after exteriorization or attempts at super-concentration or prolonged intellectual exercises hinder rather than help the process. The mental strings must be slack. A state of mind-wandering, even reverie, helps to unfocus consciousness. As one student put it, I never concentrate. I allow silence to enwrap me and then sense the house, room, and person I wish to see. If concentration is to be directed to a specific objective, it should be confined to the day before the actual experiment is tried. During the experiment itself, as during all the exercises, the mind should be relaxed, and then the objective on which one's attention and expectation have been focused during the preceding day will spontaneously help to give a fillip to the projective forces. Achieving the right frame of mind during the exercises can be further assisted by building up the correct psychological groundwork at other times. The power of suggestion is now generally accepted as having a considerable influence on the way we conduct our lives and on the success or failure of what we undertake. We are often unconsciously motivated in our actions by the suggestions implanted in us in the course of our everyday activities. This power can be turned very effectively to one's advantage by making active use of auto-suggestive procedures, a strong desire to project a frequent reiteration of this desire, and, whenever possible, holding in the mind an image of oneself projected will go a long way to promoting the success of the operation when it is undertaken. Intense desire to be elsewhere can itself, in certain circumstances, lead to projection, for the overmastering nature of the wish to be there creates the necessary conditions both for the departure of the astral and its reception at the other end. In his Nurslings of Immortality, Ray Nor Johnson remarks that there are a number of well-attested cases in which deliberately created apparitions have been clearly seen. The concentrated efforts of the will to appear to another person have led to the latter perceiving an apparition of the agent. August Strindberg, 1849-1912, Swedish author and dramatist, described how once while he was in Paris in 1895 and driven almost insane by the failure of his second marriage, he felt an intense longing to be with his family and suddenly found himself in a room of his home in which he saw his mother-in-law sitting and playing the piano. She saw him in his astral form and wrote to him inquiring if he were ill. The key to all astral projection is visualization, which demands the power of sustained imagination, and various exercises have been devised to help this power. The stages of progress in these exercises are visualization with eyes closed, or seeing through the closed lids, first without movement and then with movement, then visualization with the eyes open. These are not mutually exclusive and may be practiced alternately. A few examples will suffice. You look at a simple drawing, then shut the eyes and try to fix the picture in the mind. This should be done without concentration. It helps to look at the sketch for a second, then shut the eyes for three seconds and hold the picture in the mind. Open the eyes again to check the details and shut them once more, and so on, for a dozen or, if needed be, if need be, a hundred times, until every detail of the picture is vividly clear in the mind's eye. From there, one goes on to more complex illustrations and colored pictures, which should all be given a lifelike vitality and realism. Further practice can be had by placing a number of objects on a tray and trying to recall them with the eyes shut, not by mental association or by other mnemonic tricks, but simply by visualizing their position on the tray. Another exercise is to take a simple three-dimensional object like a book, examine the outside carefully, paying attention to the illustrated cover, the title, the spine, and the back cover. 
Shut the eyes and imagine that the book is standing upright on a table at eye level. Visualize walking around the book so that each side slowly comes into view as you walk. Sit comfortably in a semi-darkened room. Shut your eyes and imagine you are sitting in the other corner. Try the same exercise lying down, your feet pointing to the door. Shut your eyes and imagine your head is towards the door and your feet in the opposite direction. These exercises strengthen your powers of imaginative reorientation. Sit comfortably in a chair, having placed before you another chair facing in the same direction as your own. Close your eyes and imagine that you see the back of yourself seated in the chair in front. Now, without rising from your seat, try to move forward into that chair and to merge with the form in front. Look through his eyes and see from his position. Lie on your back and shut your eyes. Imagine that you are rising from your body into the air, not too far, just an inch or so. You must lose all awareness of the pressure of the bed against your back or the pillow against your head and feel that you are actually floating in the air. From the same prone position on your back and with your eyes closed, think of yourself standing up at the foot of the bed and watching yourself as you lie in it. The thought must be intensified as if your consciousness were actually transferred to the watcher. Again, lie on your back with eyes closed and concentrate on the loosening form of your astral. While the physical body remains motionless, imagine that the astral is turning in bed and lying on its side, then that it is on its stomach, then on its other side, and finally on its back. The process should be gradually speeded up. It is as if the physical body were lying immovable within a loose cylinder which was being rapidly rotated. All the above exercises are done with the eyes shut and in many cases their performance can result in exteriorization. Some people find eventually that the simple operation of closing the eyes triggers projection if the mind is ready. One woman speaking of her method of visiting friends in the astral says, My journey is accomplished with the greatest of ease. I am simply there when I shut my eyes. The next stage is a series of visualizations in which simple movements are carried out in the second body, while the eyes are open. To begin with, hold the hands up, palm outwards. Try not to think of the physical hand, but through half-open lids, imagine the astral hand within or around it. Slowly shift the astral hand out of alignment with the physical. See the second hand distinctly, then move the astral hand some distance off. More advanced exercises are undertaken on the same patterns as those already given in which the eyes are shut, but these should now be performed with the eyes open, so that when the astral double is visualized as having moved, the actual vision of the practitioner moves with it. In other words, he has to identify with his astral form. Apart from these methods, which, if persisted in long enough, often result in exteriorization, there are several specific dissociation techniques, some of which, although quite simple, are regarded as effective. Thus, staring fixedly at a small object placed some distance away and slightly above eye level can lead to dissociative states. The eyes get unfocused, normal consciousness is relaxed, and the unconscious takes over. The best way is to gaze at a small bright point like a candle flame or a spot on a white wall. Here again, there must be no strain or effort. The mind moves lazily and abstractedly over the outer fringes of the object, and the imagination is let loose. This is a very old practice in the East, now widely adopted in the Western world. The American occult group known as Ekankar, led by Paul Twitchell, then, uh, which teaches astral projection or soul travel by correspondence, recommends lying on one's back and staring without blinking at a colored disc placed between the eyebrows. The same group also uses other methods that are reminiscent of the religious exercises of Eastern sects. 
Thus, they chant magical syllables and simultaneously perform cryptic gestures. It is well known that continued monotonous movements and monotonous chanting induce xenophrenia. Even the simple repetition of one's name can be effective when carried on over a length of time. The poet Lord Tennyson spoke of a kind of waking trance that he frequently had from boyhood when alone. This has come upon me through repeating my own name to myself silently, till all at once, as if it were out of the intensity of the consciousness of individuality, individuality itself seemed to dissolve and fade away into boundless being, and this not a confused state, but the clearest of the clearest. Using beads or a fingering piece, like a smooth round stone which is rolled about between finger and thumb to the accompaniment of some cryptic verse, syllabic sound, or phoneme, can lead to trance states. Methods involving prolonged rhythmic breathing, either by special exercises or by chanting mantras, decrease the amount of carbon dioxide in the blood, alter its adrenaline content, and affect the oxygenation of the brain. Dizziness and temporary blackouts ensue, and visual images appear that might be of strange and distant places. Experienced practitioners have their own chosen methods. In his survey of American occultism, John Godwin quotes, A young American projectionist, Wanda Moore, I blink out my mind, slow down my breathing and pulse rate, and concentrate on a patch of light somewhere in the back of my brain. It takes me from three to fifteen minutes, then I'm off. Another experiment mentioned by Ralph Shirley uses a different technique. She writes, I close my eyes and have a feeling of going over backwards. This is done by lying on the back and imagining that one's legs are rising up and over the head, the rest of the body slowly taking an upside-down position. As this somersault proceeds, one becomes dizzy and is suddenly propelled out into the astral. Everyone has a vertigo threshold, which is crossed by some physical situation, and if a person knows his particular weakness, he can use it to induce dizziness. Less difficult is simple visualization that one is ascending or turning around rapidly. This should in all cases be accompanied by the vivid sensations that would normally go with such movements. Useful images are climbing a ladder, ascending in a lift, flying upwards, swimming upstream or against the tide, rising up in a swing, floating like a bubble in the air, rising straight up, rising horizontally, sitting in a merry-go-round whirling round and round. One's particular phobia likewise provides an escape hatch for the astral. Any situation where normal consciousness is benumbed by fear or panic may render the experience xenophrenic. There is a sense of timelessness, the awareness of things around one vanishes, and the astral loosens itself and is displaced. Here again, a strong imaginative visualization of being in a position of one's phobic weakness can help displacement. Wide open spaces stretching out to the endless distance, walls suddenly shrinking and hemming one in, immeasurable heights and precipices, long stretches of water, and, to those who hate them, spiders, cats, furry creatures, hairy insects, or any deeply personal terror and nightmare theme can send a person out of himself if he thinks about it with sufficient realism. 
A simple method of exteriorization is described by George du Maurier in his novel Peter Ibbotson, 1891, which portrays with a strange realism the interwoven dream lives of the hero and the girl he loves. Sentenced to life imprisonment for manslaughter, he is visited in his dream by Mary, and in turn visits her by projecting his astral form from his prison cell. This he does by putting his hands behind his head, crossing his feet, and then willing himself to the rendezvous. One of the subjects mentioned by Celia Green in her book on lucid dreams tells how he used the identical method described in Du Maurier's novel. He spent one full day concentrating as far as possible on the idea of projecting himself to a certain place that night. When he went to bed, he assumed the position described and immediately found himself in the street out of his body. Among the recommended methods devised by experimenters today is one in which exteriorization occurs through causing the physical body to tingle. Here the person lies down in a relaxed position and concentrates on the toe of one foot until it starts to feel warm and begins to tingle. He transfers his concentration to the next toe, and so on, till the tingling sensation spreads to the other toes, then to the other foot, then up both feet to the calves, knees, hips, stomach, chest, arms, neck, and head, until the whole body is buzzing. At some stage in this procedure, if properly carried out, the practitioner will find himself out of his body. Related to this are projections induced by vibrations. These vibrations are engendered in some inner layer of the body that seems to underlie the physical frame and whose mechanism can be brought into activity by an act of will to generate psychic impulses. The, the vibrations can start anywhere, the foot, abdomen, arm, or head, and are accompanied for a time by strange internal sounds. The physical body usually remains immobile throughout. The vibrations are not dangerous, and the sensations of mild electric shocks that sometimes accompany them do not last for more than a few seconds. If one is alarmed at the unusual experience, the spell is broken and all is quiet immediately, but if left to work itself out, the waves slowly dissipate, and the physical body is left with a sensation of warmth and comfort. While in this state, the double is suddenly projected. Many projections in the ordinary course, too, start and end with vibrations. A very old method entails concentration on one of the traditional glyphs used for meditation in certain cults. These glyphs are associated with colors, emblems, and other tokens, which are thought to be connected by occult correspondences. They have to be mastered, and the subconscious enriched through their study. It involves long sessions of brooding among the symbols, in a kind of relaxed and free reverie, as a result of which the astral body is gently detached and loosened from the physical. Among these devices are the mandala of the Buddhists and Hindus, and the Sephirothic tree of the Kabbalists. Another is the tarot pack, of which only the twenty-two trump cards, bearing colored drawings of allegedly ancient origin, are used. A card is picked at random from the trumps, and the scene meditated on with eyes closed, and enlarged and enlivened by imaginative insight. Then, as the experts have it, one enters the scene. Many experimenters describe how they have assisted projection by imagining that they are crawling through or forcing themselves out of a narrow opening or crevice. 
In this exercise, the person lies on his stomach and not on his back, describing her own way of embarking on astral journeys. The late Dion Fortune, died 1946, said that hers always began with a curtain of symbolic color through whose folds she passed. In his book on the subject, J. H. Brennan speaks of five basic elemental doorways to the astral plane, each associated with one of the alchemical elements, and each with its own distinctive shape and color. The fire symbol is a red triangle, air a blue circle, water a silver crescent, earth a yellow square, either a black ether a black oval. The practitioner meditates on the chosen symbol, visualizing it as large as a door, seeing its shape and color vividly, and then walking through it. Constant perseverance in this method will in time build up a strong suggestion of going through the door, and sudden vivid realization of a new dimension will confirm that one has indeed crossed the threshold. The magician Alistair Crowley, 1875-1947, to devised for his pupils a method that is now well known in occult circles. The student imagines a shut door set against a blank wall. On the door is a glyph or symbol that has previously been the subject of his meditation. The idea is to visualize the door slowly opening and then to pass through it. Kenneth Grant, who tried this method, reports that after he had projected his consciousness through the door, I found myself suddenly bereft of my body. A sensation of extreme lightness and freedom characterized my movements. The landscape that lay before him had had a glow and reality beyond earthly scenes, and it was peopled by figures resembling human beings with whom he was able to communicate. An occult organization known as the Stella Matutina, a splinter group of the once famous Order of the Golden Dawn, issued a manual of instructions for its initiates under the name of Flying Rolls. Among them was a kind of magical operation designed to promote projection of the double, called traveling in the spirit vision. In this exercise, consciousness is detached from the body and transferred to a phantom figure, especially conjured up out of the astral sphere. The progressive steps include visualizing the figure, walking before one, then imagining that the figure is oneself, looking through the eyes of the figure, feeling its sensations, and finally actually directing its operations. A Japanese method of astral travel known as counting the steps was employed by Shinto magicians to deliver messages to distant pupils and by the lovelorn to visit their sweethearts. Here again, a strong power of visualization is essential. The person concerned lies down, preferably at a time when the other party, that is the prospective recipient, is likely to be asleep. He assumes a relaxed position and concentrates on the trip and then imagines himself carrying out his mission from start to finish. He steps out of his house and sets out in the general direction of the other person's residence. Now, it does not matter how far that other person's house is and whether he has to cross the seas to get there. What is important is that he should step out in imagination a given number of paces. About 60 are enough. He should count 60 paces and visualize himself standing at the door of the house. He must then knock at the door, be invited in, and meet the other person. Visualization must be particularly strong here. Delivering his message distinctly, he must then depart. Outside the house, he should take the same number of steps back till he returns home. 
Celia Green reports an almost identical method employed in the course of an experiment in parapsychology in which a woman living in Stockholm paid an astral visit to a person living near London, whom she had never met. She relaxed in bed and tried to think of herself performing the journey. Now I am traveling by train to Gothenburg, now with the steamer across the North Sea, arriving at Tilbury, traveling to London, and then taking the train. She found herself in an English street and was soon in the house concerned. Later, an actual visit to the place confirmed the details of what she had seen during her vision. The hypnagogic state of drowsiness that precedes sleep is sometimes used as a starting point for projection. This borderland condition between somnolence and slumber is a difficult one to maintain because of the overwhelming desire to let go and fall asleep. The method has been described as sending the body to sleep while the mind is kept awake. Pre-Buddhist bond magicians of Tibet were said to be past masters in astral projection, and by means of a rite known as Mi Lam, could enter at will into their own dreams, and also those of others, in full consciousness and without loss of memory afterwards. The Russian mystic P. D. Ospensky, 1878-1947, a disciple of Gurdjieff, used to practice entering his dreams while he was in a half-dreaming state just before falling asleep, and learned to retain consciousness in sleep so that he was able to observe and later study his own dreams. One way to achieve this is to build up a dream picture during hypnagogia and then step into it and participate in the dream consciously. If the subject falls asleep, that is the end of the night's experiment, so special methods are used to hold the hypnagogic state as long as possible. For example, the subject lies on his back with the body and arms relaxed, with the body relaxed and arms by his side. When he feels he is getting drowsy, he raises the lower half of one arm to a vertical position on the bed so that it stands upright, resting on the elbow. Each time he falls asleep, the arm drops and he is awakened. This will prevent sleep, protract hypnagogia, and assist projection. Conscious projection is also possible and apparently not infrequent from the state of sleep. Experimenters have found that it helps to have a, as a last meal a supper of highly salted food without drinking water. Intense thirst, if it does not awaken the subject, will cause him to project. In Sylvan Muldoon's opinion, suppressed desire is the greatest single factor in inciting spontaneous projection, but this applies particularly to hunger and thirst. In general, it is felt that if a purer type of experience is desired, it helps to reduce the demands and discomforts of the body. Like sleep, unconsciousness produced by anesthetics has occasionally initiated spontaneous exteriorization. The subject has not so far been explored in depth, but a number of eminent persons have vouched for the efficacy of anesthesia in inducing visionary experiences. Sir Humphrey Davy, 1778-1829, experimented with nitrous oxide gas, and on inhaling it lost all connection with physical things, and on returning from his experience declared nothing exists but thoughts. The universe is composed of impressions, ideas, pleasures, and pains. Sir James Crichton Brown said that when one is under the influence of nitrous oxide, it seems as if the profoundest secrets of the universe are being revealed to one. The psychologist William James took nitrous oxide and was profoundly stirred by what he felt was its extraordinary power to stimulate the mystical consciousness. He said, Depth beyond depth of truth seems revealed to the inhaler. Similar qualities are ascribed to chloroform, Dr. George Wilde, suffering great pain, inhaled chloroform to obtain relief, and suddenly found my soul, clothed and in the form of my body, standing two yards outside my body, which lay motionless on the bed. 
He later called on three professional chloroformists to inquire whether any of their patients had ever had such experiences, and was informed that several had expressed such ideas and had experienced similar sensations. <clears throat> One patient, after an anesthetic, said, I thought I had got at the bottom of the secrets of nature. Drugs, especially the hallucinogens, are among the most drastic of all methods used for achieving discoincidence. As the drug takes effect, it seems to the experient as if another dimension layered between the physical and astral worlds slides into his awareness, and he is conscious of both worlds from an interland. The senses become confused, and the ordinary world around him takes on a dreamlike quality. Familiar objects become distorted, and his perception of light, color, movement, size, and sound is dramatically altered. There are strange distortions of space, material objects, and especially time. Days slip by like minutes, and minutes like days. Drugs like hashish, psilocybin, and mescaline produce dissociation, uh, fantasies, and symptoms akin to insanity. The effects of LSD often resemble schizophrenia. From the point of view of exteriorization, these chemically induced altered states of mind have many disadvantages. For one thing, the subject not only does not see clearly, he cannot bring back a proper report of what he has seen. The experience of drug-induced projection is therefore regarded as impure by most practitioners. Drugs, more than any other method, put into abeyance the higher faculties of the psyche and permit the more illusory perceptions to take over. <clears throat> The ill effects of drugs are a fact to be taken seriously into account before trying this method. According to occultists, the psychic atmosphere of the drug addict is exceedingly unhealthy as compared even with the common criminal whose atmosphere says die on fortune, however bad is not nearly so noxious. Further reading. Crookall, 1964, King, 1971, Muldoon, 1936, 1958, Ophiel, 1961, S. Smith, 1965.